This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. If we've not met, my name is Craig, and I'm one of the pastors here. So, hello. It's uh, great to have you here with us. And if this is your first time with us, uh, we are at the end of a series. So you're at the conclusion of what has been months for us uh, as we've walked through the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a, uh, a message that Jesus gave, and in the Bible it's found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and we're to the conclusion of that today. So we're going to be looking in chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat, under the seat rather, in front of you. You can grab that, turn to page 474. And as always, if you have questions about the text as we're going through, there's a number there that you can text a question to anonymously. And then we do a podcast during the week. It uh, comes out on Wednesday morning where we talk about various different things. It's conversations podcast, but we seek to answer whatever questions come in uh, during the sermon itself. Also, let me just, uh, before we jump in, uh, emphasize one Uh, announcement that Rob made earlier, and that is that if you have been attending for a while and have never turned in one of those little guest cards, um, in other words, you don't receive any information about anything from us, uh, we'd ask, would you be willing to fill one of those out and just put regular attender if you come here regularly? And the reason is um, that we do invite you new people, invite new people to certain things that we don't announce Sunday, and we have one of those coming up. So, We'd love to just send you an email that would let you know something that's going on for newer folks. Um, and if you turn one of those in, what you can do is fill it out, the card out, check regular attender, and if you, at the end of the service, just take it to the Connect Center and give it to them and say, here is my card. So, uh, okay, here's where we are in the Sermon on the Mount. Today we are at the conclusion of the sermon, and really this is the third section of conclusions Um, that Jesus offers. So there are three sections where he is calling people at the end of the Sermon on the Mount to make a choice. His sermon concludes with choosing between two different options. And if you think about it, the whole sermon has been filled with two-option thinking, which is a bit of a press against us uh, in this culture because uh, we, we don't really like two-option thinking. Uh, we like shades of options, and certainly in some areas there are shades of options. But in what Jesus is talking about here, there are two options. And really throughout the sermon, he's been speaking that way. So for instance, back at the beginning of the sermon in chapter 5, verse 17, he said, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. And what he was doing there was he's saying, there is religious righteousness like the Pharisees, and there is the righteousness that I provide as the king. And you, you have to choose one or the other. You, you, if you want righteousness, you've got your own or you've got mine. That's the only options that there are. Um, he says next, he talks about hypocrites, and he talks about giving, and he talks about praying, he talks about fasting. And he says, you can be a hypocrite in your religious exercises, or you can be a follower of Jesus. So he gives two ways, hypocrite or follower of Christ. He then talks about our possessions, and he says, you can, le- you can use your possessions for God's glory, that he calls that laying up treasures in heaven, or you can squander everything you have on yourself. So he calls that good treasure or bad treasure. There's two kinds of treasure. 
he talks about. He says that, you, uh, that we are called to serve him, and you can either serve God or you can serve money. He gives us two choices. He then says that you can live a life of anxiety. If you live a life built on what you can produce and taking care of yourself on your own, you will build a life of anxiety. Or you can seek his kingdom and trust him, and he will provide all these things, all the necessary things you need. So you can choose. Now, obviously, those who seek his kingdom do battle anxiety. But fundamentally, he says, you can live a life on your own, the result is anxiety, or you can live a life trusting him and his kingdom and his provision, and that's a life of rest. So you see throughout there's these two options that he keeps giving. And then he gets to the conclusion of the whole sermon, and we've looked at that two weeks. This is the third week, beginning in chapter 7, verses 13 through the end of the chapter. This is what he says. He says, there is a broad way that is a broad path, and it leads to destruction. There is a narrow gate, Jesus is that gate, that leads to a narrow path that leads to life. Two options, he says. You go broad way, broad road, destruction. You go narrow gate, narrow path, life. He then says there are two kinds of trees. One produces fruit, the other is dead, and it's cut down and thrown into the fire. There's two kinds of trees. And then today we reach the very end where he says there are two ways to build your life. You can be a hearer of Christ and respond doing what he says, or you can be a hearer who ignores him. There are two ways to live. And he challenges to ask, how are you building your life? And this is where he concludes the whole sermon, beginning in verse 24 of Matthew 7. This is God's holy word. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus is giving an analogy here. He is offering a parable, we could say, and it's, it's pretty straightforward. Sometimes Jesus tells parables and everybody's scratching their heads and all the outsiders don't get it, all the insiders do, or sometimes they need help. Uh, but this is not one of those kinds of parables. This one's pretty straightforward. He says there's two kinds of people, and uh, there, there's two guys, he says here, and uh, they're each going to build a house. And so one of them builds their house on rock on a solid foundation, and he calls that person wise. The other person builds his house on sand, and he calls that person foolish. Now, when we first read this, we think, well, who would actually build a house uh, on, on the beach? Uh, you know, that doesn't sound very reasonable just to build it straight on sand. But scholars point out that Jesus had been, prior to the Sermon on the Mount, he had been proclaiming good news in Galilee, speaking to people in Galilee, and the, the sands around the, um, the Sea of Galilee in the summer, 
particularly in the extended hot, hot months of the summer, the sands become very, very hard, uh, seemingly hard enough to actually build upon and provide a foundation. But to build upon any kind of sandy soil, you'd want to dig down deep below the soil to hit bedrock so that you could anchor your foundation to bedrock, which is building on the rock. Then Jesus points out this big idea, that the foundation that you build upon determines how your structure will hold up. Uh, And as someone who's lived in two houses with foundation damage here in Frisco, I can testify to that when you have a ruined foundation. Uh, So how what you build on, what foundation uh, that you build upon will determine how your structure will hold up when the inevitable rains and floods and winds, when the storms come. And he says the person who builds upon the rock, when the storms come, the structure will survive. Uh, But the one that is on the sand, in verse 28, he says, when the winds blow, the floods, the rain, the wind, that beats upon that house, verse 28, it fell 27 rather, I'm sorry. It fell, and great was the fall of it. It came crashing down. So this is the point he is making. There are two ways to build, and it's all based on your foundation as to whether your structure will withhold the inevitable storms that are on the way. And the point he makes from this is that the person who builds their life by hearing and responding to him is the person whose life will stand. The person who does not listen, or rather listens and does not respond, uh, that will result in a great fall. So, what do we learn from this conclusion? He's taught, there's been three chapters of material, and here is the two-option conclusion he's given. What do we learn? Well, a lot of the Sermon on the Mount has been about true followers of Jesus and false followers, true disciples and false disciples. And I think one big idea in this text is that a true disciple of Jesus builds his or her life on Jesus. A true disciple builds his or her life on the person of Jesus. Obviously, he calls people in this passage to listen to his word, but more basically, he's calling us to listen to him. In verse 24, for instance, he says, everyone who hears these words of mine. In other words, he's saying, everyone who listens to me, everyone who hears me, he's rooting his words. He's not just throwing out a list of rules, a list of principles, a list of laws, and saying, okay, here's some standards for living. He's saying he's rooting his words in himself, in his person, in his character, in his work. And we see this even more clearly that we're to build on him, first of all, in the, in, the, in the way that they respond at the end. At the end, verse 28, it says, when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Their jaws were on the floor. They were blown away. It's like someone had knocked the breath out of them. It's astonishing. It's shocking. I've never heard anything like this. That's their response at the end. Now, a lot of people, even those who, you may be one of them, even those who um, don't follow Christ or, or, or don't, wouldn't consider yourself uh, a committed religious person, uh, many people that aren't Christians admire Jesus. 
Many people that aren't Christians admire the Sermon on the Mount. This is a cherished teaching and a respected, admired teaching, even by people who don't follow Jesus. So many people who are not Christians love the golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Many people that are not Christians love Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Judge not that you be not judged. And they admire, many people that are not Christians admire the teacher, Jesus. But in this sermon, his first hearers don't stand back and admire the teaching. That they don't stand back and respect the wisdom of Jesus. They are rather astonished. Why is that? It has something to do with who he is and not just the teaching itself. Verse 28, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Verse 29, for, here's the reason, he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. The scribes were the religious teachers of his day, and this is how the scribes taught. They would stand up and they would open a text of scripture and they would explain what the religious authorities, the scholars that preceded them had taught on that passage and that would be the authority of their teaching. So a scribe would teach by saying, would open up and read a text of scripture and say, Rabbi so-and-so is quoted as interpreting this text this way. Or Rabbi thus-and-such explained that this means whatever. Or this rabbinic school holds the view that or the Pharisees, the Pharisees have interpreted, understood, and explained this scripture as, but Jesus isn't quoting anybody. He's not like their scribes. He's not coming up and looking to anyone for authority. Here's what Jesus does, and you'll remember if you've been here, here's what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, but I say to you, I say to you, It doesn't matter what anyone says. What I say is the authoritative truth. Jesus comes, and when he teaches this sermon, the people are blown away because he is speaking with one as one with absolute authority. As a matter of fact, he's speaking as one that actually claims to be God. The verse before the section that we just read, in the verse 23 of chapter 7, he speaks of judgment day, and he speaks to a group of people and says, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus is not showing up like the scribes and saying, Rabbi so-and-so says, and we know. He's saying, on the last day, I will be on the throne. I will be judging people. And there are some people, tragically, who think they know me, but I'm going to say, I don't know you. Depart from me. So the people who gather don't say, these are nice teachings. Let's make a plaque. Let's embroider them on a pillow and put them on a coffee cup. People are saying, this guy is saying things we've never heard. This guy is claiming to judge us on the last day. This guy is claiming that he isn't saying, here's some ideas that I'm throwing out into the marketplace of ideas, and let's sit around and consider, what do you think? And what do you think? I don't know. What do you think? He's not showing up with, well, this is sort of a philosophy that you have your truth and I have my truth. Jesus is saying, what I'm saying to you right now, there are two options. You buy it, and you will experience life 
or you deny it and you will experience destruction. Your entire life and your eternity is determined by how you respond to me and my words, Jesus would say. That's the foundation on rock or on soil. Jesus doesn't leave us the option to merely say, he's a wise teacher. I like his sayings. I feel good about Jesus. No, we, he says, you are either for, you are in me, you believe in me, you receive me, or you reject me. Those are the two options. And that's how he closes his sermon. He finishes it by saying, you can build your life on me and my authority, or you can build your life on the surfacy, sandy, thin righteousness of the Pharisees. That's who he's contrasting himself with in context. So the Pharisees present this kind of religious life, that this is what you do for God, and this, this is how you're accepted by God, and this is how you win God's approval. In essence, you do all of these things. And he says, you know what, if you're going to try to stand before God based on what you do, that is a sandy, thin soil that will, you, your foundation is weak and your structure will crash down when the storms come. But if you hook yourself to me, if you build upon Jesus and his word, you will withstand the coming storms. A life built on any other foundation will experience a great fall. And that's because God created us to know him, to be in relationship with him, to build our life upon him, and we turn from him. We see this in the garden, humanity, the garden of Eden. Humanity turned from God and went its own way. And Jesus comes bringing the kingdom of God. That means the reign of God. He comes bringing God's rule and God's reign. And he says, if you want to experience life the way you were created to live, then turn to me, the king, and you will experience life in the New Testament, the primary picture of the believer in Jesus is said to be the person who is in Christ, who identifies with Christ, who is with Christ. We are in union with Christ. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. It is building life attached to him, connected to him, so that his life flows into us and through us um, like a vine in its branches. He is our life. So he's saying that just changes the metaphor a little bit. If you want real life, you build connected to the person of Jesus. You orient your life around him. You look to him. You receive from him. You cherish him. You depend upon him. You are, all of life is built on the foundation of him and his authority and who he is. This is what Jesus says. A true disciple builds his or her life on Jesus. Secondly, a true disciple builds his or her life on Jesus' word. On Jesus' word. And we could be broader that, than that and say all the scripture, because all the scripture is breathed out by God, not just the red letters, uh, if you have one of those editions, but all of the Bible. So building your life on the rock is building your life on the truth of scripture. In the parable, both the wise and the foolish builders hear God. They both hear Jesus. They hear Jesus teach. And this is something that we can easily miss, that there's no distinction here between the person who hears Jesus and the one who doesn't hear Jesus. They've all just sat before him and heard the sermon. So he's saying, everybody's here gathering, hearing the sermon. So there's two kinds of hearers here. The distinction is not hearing and not hearing. The distinction is hearing 
and acting versus hearing and refusing to act, hearing and ignoring what is being communicated. That's the difference here. We, we should pause on that thought for a little bit because some of us may have thought, well, that's like the believer and the unbeliever, the person, sort of the pagan whose orientation is completely never even heard of Jesus um, and the follower of Jesus, but that's not the distinction at all. They, they all heard. They were all exposed to his teaching. Th- these are, he's talking about the person who builds on sand is the person who's heard of Jesus. In this case, it's the person who has some familiarity with Jesus. It may be the person who is religious, who goes to church. They at least came to this sermon and heard Jesus. It it may be someone who even agrees with the ideals of Christ and some of his teaching. The, the, The person who builds on sand may be all of that. It's just he or she didn't take action in response to what Jesus taught and claimed. And we each have to ask ourselves, if I claim Jesus is my Lord, here's, he's called the King, the Lord, the Ruler, if I, the Savior, if I claim Jesus as my Lord, does that claim make any difference in my life? Now, some of this is going to sound like the exact same th- sermon I've, for the third week in a row, but it's because it's exactly what Jesus does. Three weeks in a row, he gives a warning about genuine and false disciples. And, and so I'm just seeking to repeat what he has said, and it's good for us to hear it again, to ask the question, if I claim Jesus as my Lord, if, and, I'm, and I say that I believe his word and I'm building my life on his truth, does that make any difference in my life? Is the reality of Christ and his rule and reign, do this, does this teaching affect in a tangible way how I spend my time? What do I do with my time? Is it any different because I know him or have I simply heard a message? Uh, Have I simply acknowledged him? Have I simply intellectually said, yeah, okay, I'm for that? Or does it make a difference? Does it make any difference? Here's the two big ones, my time and my money. Is there any tangible expression? Can I look at my life? Can I evaluate not only my time but my finances and saying the way I use the finances God has given me I can, it's demonstrably different because I know Christ. It's demonstrably different because he is my Lord. There is a generosity that he calls me to. Does that show up in my life? Is my time and my finances affected by his word? How about my marriage? If I say that Jesus is my Lord, is that something that I acknowledge in wonderful songs and I listen politely to a sermon and I pray at the end and I acknowledge his lordship in an auditorium with a bunch of people on Sundays or is that something that affects the way I treat my spouse, the goal of my marriage? Is there any application? Is it detached? Is is there a detachment from Jesus and how I love my spouse? Or is there a connection? Because if there is an overall detachment in all of these areas, then we need to ask, am I building on sand? 
or am I building on a rock? How about my work? How about my work? Is there a connection between Jesus as Lord and the way I view and the way I do my work? Whether you're working in the marketplace, whether you are a stay-at-home mom, whether you are a full-time student, whether you are retired and your work is volunteer work, whatever your context, we all have a context of work at some level. So does knowing Jesus inform that? Does building on his word affect how I do my job? Does it affect how I care for those who are in need, to care for the needy, to show mercy to them? Does it affect how I practically love others? The question is not, am I familiar with Jesus? The question is not, do I attend church or am I a church member? The question is not, do I agree with what he says and commands? The question is, have I heard and am I responding to his word? Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We have to acknowledge in our world, in this part of the world at least, and it's changing, but at least for today, there are many places around where we live and in our culture that you can get much information about Jesus. But the question is not, are we informed about him? The question is, are we building our lives in union with him, up on him, connected to his word? Is his word the governing direction for our lives, or are we merely gathering information without responding? That is the great warning of the text here. Jesus is saying, do we get this? Jesus is saying it is possible to stand 10 feet from God himself at the Sermon on the Mount. You could be on row three, center section, right there in front of Jesus. You could go up to Jesus at the end of the sermon. You could be moved. You could be astonished. You could go up and shake the preacher's hand at the end and say, great sermon, Jesus Well done, good and faithful Lord. You could say that to him and go on your way without responding. And it does not matter that you were with God himself. You are building your life on sand and it will be destroyed. That's the point of the passage. It is a sobering reality. And Jesus doesn't just share this here. We find this same theme elsewhere in the Bible. Listen to this passage in James 1, 22, where really the same idea is taught. James 1, 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law of liberty, I'm sorry, the law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Jesus here, or James here says that the one who hears and does is blessed. That's how the whole book, the whole Sermon on the Mount started. Blessed is the one, blessed is the one. He's speaking of the good life, the good life, the, the flourishing Uh, flourishing existence is to hear God, to know him, and to respond to him. But James warns it's possible to be a hearer and not a doer. Verse 22, uh, if if we are hearers only, we deceive ourselves, he says. This is a wild idea, that it was possible to go hear Jesus. The crowds did this, and 
hear him speak truth and walk away deceived. It's possible for you to come here Sunday after Sunday and hear what I hope is truth. We're teaching from the Bible as far as we know it is. Uh, Hear truth and walk away deceived. Why? Because if we assume that exposure to truth without responding to truth, we think exposure alone changes us. I was at the Sermon on the Mount. I was at the church. I was at the small group. I had a devotional time. If we're exposed to truth in the word, but we do not respond, then we're deceiving ourselves because we're assuming that I'm maturing, I'm growing, I'm godly, I know God, I'm experiencing God, uh, I'm a Christian. We're assuming all of these things, but if there is no response, then we are building on sand. Actually, James says we are deceiving ourselves. John Stott, in his commentary, on the Sermon on the Mount, says this about the passage that we're reading, and again, it's sobering language. He says, in applying this teaching to ourselves, we need to consider that the Bible is a dangerous book to read, and that the church is a dangerous society to join. For in reading the Bible, we hear the words of Christ, and in joining the church, we say we believe in Christ. As a result, we belong to the company described by Jesus as both hearing his teaching and calling him Lord. Our membership, therefore, lays upon us the serious responsibility of ensuring that what we know and what we say is translated into what we do. So that I'm not misunderstood, let me be clear. The foundation that is the rock is not our works. I'm not saying our obedience is the foundation. That's sand. I said that earlier. That's sand. The point is that if I am building on Jesus and I am in faith in him and I am building on his word which reveals him to me and it's faith in Christ through his word. If I'm believing that I'm saved by Jesus, I'm saved by grace through faith, not my works, but his death on the cross and his obedience for me. If I'm saying that I'm saved by what he has done and not my works, that kind of faith, real faith, saving faith, will be demonstrated in works. Real faith in Christ, a real building upon the person of Christ, will mean that I know Christ, that I am in him, that his spirit is in me, and his spirit changes me. Sometimes it's incremental, sometimes it's slow, sometimes issues take years, but there is a growth, there is a movement, there is a desire to obey, there is grace, and we may go three steps forward and five steps back and two steps forward and three steps, but there is a progress in becoming more and more like Jesus over time. If we're not, if we cannot connect the word of God to our lives in any way but this hour, if we cannot connect the person of Jesus to our lives except when I'm at church on Sunday mornings, if we cannot, then we need to ask ourselves in a real way, am I building on sand? Do I even know him? Or am I building on a rock? Last point, a true disciple, first of all, builds his or her life on Jesus, builds his or her life on Jesus' word, and lastly, a true disciple builds his or her life to withstand the storm. A true disciple builds his or her life to withstand the storm. Now, actually, that's probably not technically, theologically, the best way to say it. We're building our, our life, if we're building our life on Christ, he will protect us from the storm. But the idea is that if you build your life in dry times with a view towards the coming storms, Uh, that that's the wise builder. You build in a way 
knowing the storms are coming, you build in a way, build the foundation on the rock so that you are prepared to stand. There's a long-term view in discipleship. It's not what's easiest at the moment. That's throwing something up on sand. Building on rock means you've got to dig down deep to get to the rock, and that's a lot, that's more challenging. So it's looking long-term and not just in the moment. So what are the storms in the parable? Because that's a really important point, isn't it? I think we can get the idea of Jesus as the foundation, or the rock, rather. I think we can get the idea of the word as the rock. But what are the storms that come to both builders? Well, storms can mean the trials of life. That's a biblical idea. You find elsewhere the analogy of a storm being compared to our trials. So, for instance, Psalm 69, 1 and 2 says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. So there the psalmist is saying, and then goes on to describe difficulties. I'm experiencing these tremendous difficulties. It's like the storm has come and the water is up to my neck. So you see that idea in Scripture. And as a pastor, I have observed people up close in their suffering in so many differing ways and have been amazed to see how God's Word and God's Spirit have sustained them when the flood of sorrow has come into their life or when the winds of affliction have beat against their life. I've, I've seen them stand by God's grace. And it's one of the most powerful evidences of the fruit of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit in someone's life. I mean, one way God demonstrates his power is he removes the storm. So sometimes he intervenes when the storms of life come, and he says, peace be still, and the storm stops. And that's power. But another power is the storm comes, and when the storm dies down, you go, wow, the house is still standing. That's only because the foundation on which it was built, the power of Christ. Another application that, that people, that's the most common application. Another application that's sometimes made about the storms is that the storms might be persecution or opposition, opposition that blows up against the house. Opposition is in the Sermon on the Mount. At the very beginning, he says in, in, in the first statements of blessed are, he does say blessed are you when you are persecuted for my name's sake. So that is an idea that's not far from the Sermon on the Mount. When the rains and even the floods of opposition come, when the cultural winds blow hard against the church and the storm of persecution descends on God's people, those built on the rock of Scripture and built on Jesus will stand. Those who are nominal Christians, who weren't really about it, that were just like coming to a meeting, once the heat gets turned up, to change the metaphor, or once the winds come, those who aren't really connected to Jesus that have built on sand, they'll just bail. Because who wants to go through all that? And uh, maybe we're living in a culture where the, the storms are coming and the floodwaters are rising against those who would claim Christ. That's certainly a possibility. But so, so some say, well, if you're built on Christ, you will withstand that. I think that's true. But I don't think either of those are the application of this text primarily. I think they're both true. Suffering, storms are suffering, storms are persecution. But I think the most specific application can be found by looking at the context. Always, always, always look at the context. It is, it is the key to understanding a text. I don't know much about technology, but all I know is always, always 
turn it off and turn it back on. We had a situation in our house this morning. Something was going haywire. I just told my wife, turn it off and turn it back on. That's all I know. But that, you could do a lot worse. And usually that solves all my problems in life. Turn it off, turn it back, having a bad day, go to sleep, wake back up, it's gone. Turn it off, turn it back on, okay? Reboot, that's the answer. The answer in scripture is not reboot, but the answer is always look at the context. What is the context? You'll know this for sure if you've been here the last three weeks. But if you haven't, I'll just review it with you briefly. The context is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not talking about trials, Jesus is not talking about persecution. He is talking about eternity. That's what he's been saying. He said right before this section, what he just said in verses 13 and 14, he said there are these two gates, and those who enter the narrow gate and travel along the narrow path will experience life, but those who travel the broad path will come to the end of the path, and it will be destruction. That's judgment for eternity that he's talking about. What does he talk about in the next illustration in the conclusion? Verse 19, he said there are false prophets and they don't bear fruit. And so because they don't bear fruit, they are dead trees. And like dead trees, they are cut down and they are thrown into the fire. What is that? He's talking about judgment. For eternity. And then there is the verse that immediately precedes this section. Verse 23, Jesus says, I will judge everybody in the last day. Some people will say, Lord, Lord, don't we know you? Didn't we do amazing works in you? And Jesus says in verse 23, he says to them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. That's talking about judgment for eternity. Judgment in the gate and the road. Judgment for the living and dead tree. Judgment for those who knew Jesus and didn't know Jesus. He's not transitioning. And for my final point, let me talk to you about trials. He is continuing to say the same thing. The context, the main idea here is, is, is not that Jesus helps us stand in sickness, job loss, grief, cultural, oppos- cultural opposition, persecution, though all that's true. And, and it's perhaps a secondary or tertiary application. But the primary application is that a life built on Christ and his word will empower us to stand before God in eternity. That he is saying that your life, if it's built on anything beside Jesus, will come crashing down in the presence of God's eternal judgment. That's why he's leaving it with such a sober closing. Is it sober to stand under persecution? Of course it is. But it's nothing like what he is talking about here. Only the life built on Christ will stand. Why is that? Because Jesus is the one who removes our sins. Jesus is the one that takes our sins upon himself so that we can stand before the holy God of the universe. Jesus is the one who has given us the gift of righteousness so that we stand clothed in his righteousness. If we've believed in him and his death and resurrection, we stand holy before God. Only the life built on hearing that truth and receiving it and believing it, and then that life overflows into a life of increased obedience to him. Salvation is a gift of grace, and this gift of grace is experienced in a life that is listening and responding and increasingly doing what he calls us to do. The closing illustration puts the fear of God in us because it shows us that hearing alone results in destruction. Hearing must be accompanied by believing 
And believing is evidenced by obeying him. You know, maybe you're here and and you aren't building your life on Christ. You would say, well, I don't really, you know, I'm not really sure. I'm investigating, but I don't really believe in Jesus. And maybe you look at your life. Maybe you're an older person like me. And you look at your life and you go, I've been through a lot of storms. And you know what? They've been hard, but they've just caused me to persevere. And I've endured. And that's true. You have. I've endured a lot of storms. I've pressed through the adversity. And you know what? I look back at the storms of my life when the winds blew against my life. And I I feel like those things made me stronger. And I'm a better person because of them. And all of that may be true. And you say, I feel like I'm doing okay because I've stood through the storms. But friend, let me tell you that Jesus loves you enough that he is telling you in this passage, in these words, there is coming a storm that you cannot even imagine and you will not stand on your own. You cannot stand before the holy God of the universe and share your resume of good works, share your endurance, share your intentions, share what you have done because under the holiness of God, all of us would face judgment and destruction. The only way to stand before the holy God of the universe is to stand with Jesus, to stand in Jesus who is our righteousness to stand in Jesus who does forgive our sins. There is a storm coming and you must consider it. And Jesus closes this sermon. It's so vital. He closes it, illustrating it in three different ways, saying if you don't get the narrow, if you don't get that gate in the road thing, then let me tell you something else. Let me tell you about dead trees and living trees. And if you don't get that, let me warn you about people that are going to stand before me and say, hey, we knew you, and I'm going to say, no, you didn't. And if you don't get that, think about this foundation illustration. Think about what are you building your life on because there is coming a storm that you cannot withstand. It's a loving warning that he gives to us, and it's so easy to ignore warnings. We don't hear this kind of teaching a lot in the evangelical church. We don't want to be viewed as fundamentalist or turn and burn people, so we don't, we don't fairly warn people what Jesus warns us of, that you will be evaluated and you will crumble or you will stand. Two options. My wife and I lived a number of years in California, maybe almost 20, I don't know, but um, I remember when we first moved there, within eight months, we, we experienced our first earthquake, and that's a story for another time. I'd never heard what to do in an earthquake, and I think I jumped in a bathtub, and that's tornadoes, I think, but I don't know. So anyway, we experienced our first earthquake, and so after that, I remember doing some research on earthquakes, and they would show various times you'd see these documentaries about The big one, that's what they used to call it. The big one is coming. And the big one is the San Andreas Fault. Someday that San Andreas Fault line is going to open up and just suck everybody down into the earth. And Los Angeles is going to just drift off into the Pacific. And I'd watch those documentaries and practically wet myself. They were fearful. And so for a minute I'd think, we need to go get some uh, earthquake supplies. We need to be ready for the big one. But the next morning rolls around and I turned it off, turned it back on, rebooted. And I'm, I didn't even think about it. Oh yeah, that's in the past. The warning came. The big one is coming. But it's just so easy to go about life and ignore. We didn't prepare. We weren't prepared. I think we had a jug of water or something. But we weren't really, maybe a flashlight, but we weren't really prepared. 
Thankfully, I got out of there. I'm in Texas now, so I'm home free. But I'm out, the big one's not going to get me. But uh, that's the way we live our lives. Don't let this warning be a documentary saying, the big one's coming, and then just go about your life. Run to Jesus. God is giving us grace. He's merciful to hear and to respond. Sober passages of Scripture represent the kindness of God. This isn't God being all mean and nasty to everybody. This is God, Jesus, the person in God in the flesh, extending mercy and grace, saying, here's what's coming, but you can stand. You can stand if you are in me by grace. It's nothing you can do. It's what you receive from him. Listen, if you are in Jesus, if that is, if you've repented of your sin, you've believed in him, you've been converted, you've been born again, you're a new person, whatever language you want to use from the Bible, if that is you, there are two things that are true about you, and this is good news. The first thing that is, is that you will, if you're in Christ, you will stand in that day. We'll all stand before the Lord, but if you have believed in Christ, you're in him, you're covered with his righteousness. And your plea is, have you sinned? Absolutely. Have you failed? Absolutely. But you are in Christ, and his righteousness is yours. And the Father welcomes you with open arms because you're one of his children. You've been adopted into his family. So the two things that are true, that if you are in Christ, you will stand on that day. And hear this, you will stand until that day. This is the good news of Jesus. It is true that the sufferings of life come. It is true that the persecutions of life come. But if you are in Jesus, you will stand. If your confidence is in him, not only will you stand on that day, but you can stand today with the same Jesus, the same grace, the same word that upholds you by faith. Our confidence is in him, and that leads us to want to obey him and do what he teaches, to be hearers and doers. The sermon started with blessed or the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit are those who see their need for God. The sermon starts with you're blessed if you see your need for God. And it closes with you're blessed if you've heard him and you are responding to him, you are obeying him. This is the good life. This is flourishing. It is grace. It is the gift of new life in Christ. It is Christ in us changing us so that we can obey. Always leaning on what he has done for us and not what we have done for him. Always leaning on his works and not ours. But leaning in a way that he is changing us so that we are more and more becoming like Christ in our lives. So are you believing? Where are you standing? How are you building your life? That's what he leaves us with. How are you building? You can build on Christ by faith in him, or you can build on any other foundation. But in that day, the only structures that will stand were those built on him. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.